Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Let's get situated here. We good this morning? Yeah? I have energy. I hope you guys... Yeah, I feel like I'm going to carry us this morning. It's fine. That's fine. I have energy. I'm excited to be here. We're talking about uh, the glory of the Lord. Uh, So throughout history... Uh, This chapter we're going to go through, John 17, there are many people, many believers, saints, uh, your your theologians throughout history who would say John 17 is the holiest of Holy Scripture. Like this is the chapter to go to. Um, This isn't in my notes, but I'm just remembering right now um, a story I heard about uh, John Knox. I don't know if you know who John Knox is, um, Scottish uh, reformer one of my heroes of the faith. And when he was on his deathbed, for, for I think he was there a couple hours, all he requested was that John 17 be read to him repeatedly. And so I just, that, that sort of sets the framework for us, how comforting and encouraging um, th- this text is this morning. Now, in your Bibles, you may see a, he- a header that says the high priestly prayer is sort of the divider uh, for a lot of our Bibles. And um, that, that's what this is considered, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And up to this point, um, it's been exciting, and we've been in awe that we've been learning about Jesus and his, his insightful you know, uh, words, that this knowledge of God that we are getting, um, his, his teachings about life, how things really work, being almost counter-cultural completely, and this whole upside-down way of look to look at things. Um, Jesus has shared his titles all of his amazing titles and what they mean, and of course, uh, Jesus' miracles. We've seen all these things. But now, just before we get to the cross here, we get to see the heart and mind of Jesus as he prays to the Father. And so this should be encouraging to us. This should inspire us in at least two ways this morning, church. Um, The first is that we would look at this prayer of Jesus and then prioritize Jesus's prayers. I mean, if Jesus is praying for this, good chance, hey, we should be praying for this as well. So we should model ourselves individually and corporately after his prayers. Um, Secondly, is, is that we would not just pray like Jesus prays, but be what Jesus prays for. Maybe it's crazy to think about it, but you can live your life in a way that's an answer to Jesus's prayers. As you look at what he prays for, if he prays for something, become that thing, right? And so pray like Jesus and then try to be what Jesus prays for and give Jesus glory like that and, quite frankly, give him joy. And again, our text today is going to be John 17. It's not a long chapter. We'll get through the entire thing. Today's sermon is called The Way to Pray for Glory. Let me pray for us first. Lord, may uh, this sermon, may our worship, may every aspect of our lives bring you glory. We were not meant for glory. We see that in our world when people uh, do attain to some form of glory. The result is usually very bad. 
Lord, we don't want glory for us. We want glory for you because that's what's going to bring us the most joy, Lord. May you convict us of that as we read your holy word today, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's start by looking at verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so as we read those, those, those first five verses, what's the word that sticks out to you the most? Glory, right? Five times glory. So we know right off the bat in this prayer of Jesus is Jesus is praying for his glory. Now when we talk about glory, we're talking about the visual manifestation of his, his beauty, his majesty, his goodness. The ability to see it, like actually experiencing it, is his glory. And by, by glorified, glorified is a little different because glorified is the response. So when we talk about Jesus being glorified, we're talking about something, that, something we can do. We, we can glorify Jesus. And so glory is the display and glorifying is the response, right? Singing songs, that's us glorifying and celebrating who Jesus is. But perhaps, I don't know, I, I'd look at this, Jesus praying for his own glory, and something doesn't seem quite right. Maybe, maybe you feel the same way. This is Jesus we're talking about here. This is the humblest guy ever, right? I mean, he's made it clear. There's, there's, there's never been or will be a servant as humble as Jesus, yet he's starting off this prayer, give me the glory, God, God the Father, glorify your Son, and so what's going on here? Well, the first thing to recognize is that it's not glory like we understand glory. It's not, you know, um, I don't even know who would be, I'm not cool. I don't know who's being glorified in our culture right now. The first person that comes to my mind is sort of a Tom Brady, you know, that the people are just, oh, you know, <clears throat> or, or celebrities, um, whether good or bad. But that's not the glory that Jesus is praying for. He's not praying for more likes. He's not praying that people think he's cool, right? And so when he's praying for his glory, what he means is when, he, when people see his glory, and not everybody can, but when they see his glory, that means they get it. They understand. They're not just looking at this dude, right? They're like, they see who he is. And so if Jesus is being glorified, if you're seeing Jesus' glory, that means you are seeing him as a savior, right? So when Jesus says, glorify me, right, he's saying, let people see, let me save people. Let people see me as savior. So this is not a popularity thing at all. This is Jesus trying to save. And so what we find here is Jesus praying for three types of glory in this text. The first is glory in the cross. Glory in the cross. Now, we didn't see the word cross here. It's not there. 
But we see the cross and the expression, the hour. The hour. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and the Son may glorify you. And so for months now, we've heard all throughout Jesus' ministry, no, I can't do that. The hour hasn't come. No, the hour hasn't come. Then, last couple of months we've been meeting, uh, you may have noticed the language change. Oh, we're getting closer, right? Jesus is saying the hour, it's, it's at hand. I mean, it, it, it's on the horizon. And now in this conversation, we see Jesus saying, the hour has come. Like, it, 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 it is ground zero. It, it is time. The hour is at hand. The hour for which he came, which was the cross. Now, Jesus prays that he would be glorified in the cross. Well, if, if you know the cross, you know that it's, it's not glory, it's gory, right? It's, nobody looks at the cross, it's like, oh, the glory. Well, depending on what you saw, on one hand, you could see that, oh, oh, this criminal, he's been butchered, he's bleeding, he's dying and deserved death. But Jesus is praying that his glory would be seen, that his goodness would be seen in his broken body, right? That's the glory that he wants. He wants to see people see him, not as a criminal being murdered, but as a holy, righteous person be, being un, unjustly killed, murdered. So Jesus prays, as we, as we talked about last week, while the fact people are going to cheer and jeer at his humiliation, he's asking for glory and his exaltation in that same moment. And again, Jesus mentioned last week, that's what's going to be happening Going to have it's like being at a sporting event where this, you know, there, there's a team that's excited, fans that are excited, and some that are crying, and that's the cross, right? And the ones who who are crying are the ones who see His glory, and and really they don't have this theology after the cross yet. They're just watching God get murdered. Now, additionally, Jesus prays for the Father to be glorified in this same act, and, and we see this a couple times in this passage, where it says in verse four. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so Jesus is saying, yes, he wants to be glorified because, again, that means understanding. People are understanding who he is. But as people understand who he is, like even that, we would fall into that category this morning. As we see Jesus' glory, Jesus is, is pointing to the Father. He wants to make sure that the Father gets glory as well. After all, it's the Father who set this plan of redemption in motion, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Like, Jesus is being obedient, but he's saying, the Father, like, how can you, how can you celebrate me and, and see my glory without seeing the person who sent me, right? The Father sent Jesus. The Father's the one who shows us his glory. All the, it's the Father who chooses us, as we've seen throughout this book. And so Jesus wants to... <laughs> you to know to glorify the Father as he is glorified. And I think um, even last night, seeing the shadow of this, in a, in a not a similar way, but, you know, it's baseball season. Um, and after players hit home runs, they go around the bases, jump on home plate, and what do they do afterwards? Right? They point up, right? Oh, that wasn't me. That wasn't steroids. That was, that was God who did that. <clears throat> And that's what Jesus is saying here. Oh, you could see my glory? Well, since you could see me, let me point you so you can see the Father. The Father should receive glory. 
After all, the hour, the cross, is a marvelous, glorious display of the Father's character. In the cross, we see Jesus, but we see the character of the Father. We see his grace displayed, right, and that he's saving enemies of the throne of heaven. And we see his justice and dealing with evil, which is all of our hearts. Now, speaking of heaven and the throne of heaven, Jesus wants glory in heaven. Jesus wants glory in heaven. We read this in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This goes back all the way to John chapter 1, right? Jesus is God. So Jesus, is, Jesus has been glorious forever. He's been glorious forever since the beginning. Heaven's been filled. Since the beginning, heaven's been filled with the glory of Jesus. And then when Jesus was born, what did he do? He put that glory aside. Right? People couldn't have seen the glory of Jesus. If the people were terrified of angels, imagine... Jesus appearing in his full glory? No, he had to put his glory aside for a season. But, but here's the deal. As he became flesh, which we know Jesus did, to glorify the Father and for the joy set before him, he, he put aside his glory for us this morning. Right? Think about that. There's an aspect to Jesus' ministry to his life that we've already seen a couple times, we won't go through all these times, that we've heard him mention before, Jesus misses home. Like he, misses, he misses his community. He misses that, that triune relationship. He misses that full glory of that relationship. And truth be told, he's actually going to have more glory in heaven, if that seems possible. Well, how is that? Well, he came to save and so while Jesus has been glorious for all of eternity, he's now going back to heaven and he's going to be glorified more, right? He's not just going to have the, these crazy, beautiful, crazy-looking angels on fire and flying with all their eyes worshiping him. He's going to have people like us. He's going to have people from every tribe and nation glorifying him forever. So Jesus is already thinking about heaven. He wants that glory back. He wants all of his full glory back. But he also knows that he has people who want to glorify him. And heaven for him looks differently than before because someday even we are going to be there glorifying him like he deserves. Which means even... Even Sunday mornings, you could even look at Sunday morning as a sort of a practice for eternity. Right? As we worship the glory of the Father, we, we, are, we, are practicing, we are practicing for something that we are going to do forever. And just think about that. Well, we haven't seen Jesus. You know, we, we've experienced Jesus we have new life in Jesus. We worship Jesus without knowing what he looks like. And we can worship him right now today. How insane is our worship? How unrestrained is our worship going to be when we see the glory of Jesus with no filter? Like, imagine what that's going to look like. I, I've thought about it before. And I don't know if I'm just going to cry or, or curl up in a ball or, or sing or all those things at once, but we, we have no idea 
But when we meet Sunday morning, when we worship, we should be thinking about that. Am I, am I worshiping God with the glory that he deserves in the way that I worship? Speaking of us, the church, Jesus prays for glory in the church. Glory in the church. Did you know that Jesus prays for you in the Bible? Did you know that? Does that seem possible? That Jesus would be praying for you? Well, in this passage, there's multiple passages where we see this, but in our passage today, a couple of times, Jesus mentions the church, the, the saints, the disciples who come after the disciples. And so he's praying for us. And while praying for his glory and the glory of the Father, he says in verses 2 and 3, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so the glory that Jesus wants in the church is the celebration, the recognition of who he is. And so he's praying for God the Father if you're going to have people meet in my name, let them meet and understand my glory. Let them celebrate who I am. Which means the glory of Jesus in the church follows the knowledge of Jesus. Right? We have to know who Jesus is to understand his glory. Right? He, he, he's not like hippie, uh, Jesus is my friend, co-pilot, whatever you want to call it. That's not who he is. To understand him and worship him correctly, we need to know how glorious he is. And as we know that, the more we know about Jesus, what that also means is that we know a lot about the Father. Because Jesus prayed in the midst of his glory that they know you. That they know you. What, so what, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, if you're going to glorify me, the way, if you want to glorify me, know the Father. You know, Jesus said that they may know you. So what does that mean? Theology matters. Theology matters. That's what that means. Christianity is not a religion of ignorance, right? It's knowledge, everything that we may know. Everything is based on knowledge. The more accurate our theology is, the better our worship will be. The more passionately we can glorify Jesus if we just understand. I don't know about you, but I may have talked to some of you about this before, but as I consider the glory of Jesus, just my Christology, what I believe about Jesus, for me, I have to do it in seasons. And so as we've gone through John, uh, the, the, the good shepherd, right, the, the sacrificial lamb, uh, the bread of life, the, the friend, all these different elements, which for me to wrap my mind a little bit around, I have to separate them because he's so glorious. I can only focus on one aspect of how glorious Jesus is at a time. Now, last week we talked about praying in Jesus' name, praying in Jesus' name for those things that Jesus would pray for so that the Father might answer. And so in verses 1 through 5, what we have is, well, these are the things that we could be praying for. And so this morning, we're going to look at um, eight ways that we could be praying, right? Like Jesus prayed for, for glory, eight ways to pray. We find the first three in these first five verses. 
The first of which is pray for the glory of Jesus. Pray for the glory of Jesus. We had this saying at my last church, plastered it everywhere, and it was part of our vocabulary, which was make Jesus non-ignorable. Make Jesus non-ignorable was our mission statement. Ask and pray that God would make the name of Jesus lifted up above every other name, including, you know, TikTokers, celebrities, athletes, politicians. We want the glory to be on Jesus, for Jesus, in Jesus. Secondly, pray for the glory of Jesus in the cross. Pray for glory of Jesus in the cross, which means ask the Father for the, the beauty and the power, the glory of the cross to radiate continuously, even to today. Think about this. There's this hour that we're talking about, the glory of the cross. I mean, we're still drawn to that, right? That's why we're here this morning. And so ask for th that God the Father would see Bakersfield, and this would be a place where people would still see the glory of the cross, to see Jesus, his glory as being the sacrificial lamb and who attains our salvation, that they would look at the cross and see the glory of the Father and the character of the Father and the sovereignty and the grace and the justice. We must also pray for the glory of Jesus in the church, which means we must pray honestly, sincerely, when we meet that our posture, that our purpose is the glory of Jesus. If we as a church, if, if our meeting isn't about glorifying Jesus, we are not a church, right? We, we could be a theological social club. We, we could just be a community that shares some religious values, but if our purpose isn't to glorify Jesus more than ourselves, we are not a church. If I'm not doing that, then I'm, I, I'm deceiving you. I'm failing you. For that reason, I believe we should never ask, as I've mentioned before, what we thought about worship but ask ourselves how we worshiped. That's the question. Did I worship Jesus like he should be worshiped? Now, after Jesus prayed for his glory and for his glory in heaven and glory in the church, he then prays for his disciples. He prays for his disciples. But who are the disciples of Jesus? Well, in this text, we know that there's technically the disciples. At this point, um, 12. I know Judas isn't there, so 11-ish, but Judas is still alive, so he's praying for 12. But in this text as well, it shows us that he's talking about disciples down the line because he's talking about the spreading of the gospel. So when he's talking about praying for the disciples here, that means he's praying for us again as well. He's praying for the church but here's sort of where the controversy comes in, starting with verses 6 through 9. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth but I have come from you, and they have believed that you have sent me, or that you sent me. So disciples here, according to this text, are, well, the disciples that Jesus is talking to, but he's also talking about disciples all throughout history, 
including us, and then who, uh, Lord willing, that we are going to bring to the faith as well. And so the prerequisites of this text is um, you have to be given to the Son from the Father. You have to know the Word, believe the Word, and keep the Word. In other words, you know who Jesus is, and you obey him, and you follow him. That makes you a disciple. All right, so where's the difficulty in that? Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Very difficult very difficult verse to comprehend. Easy verse where, you know, maybe in some other church, they're going to skip over to the next awesome, glorified Jesus verse. But we have to address this. And this isn't a new issue that we're introducing here. We have talked about the doctrines of grace. We have talked about th this reality as well. We saw it in, in John 6:37. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Um, this is a truth that Paul will then use... The, you know, 14 books of the New Testament to, to then uh, flesh out, including Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So yeah, I mean, this is a difficult text that, 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 that people struggle with. But it also has to reframe how we consider ourselves as the church. Our, our, our gift of faith, and our faith is a gift, our gift of faith in Jesus is also a gift to Jesus from the Father. Now, I don't think we think about that enough. Your faith is a gift to Jesus. The way you live your life is not just worship of Jesus, but you, your life is a gift to Jesus, and it pleases Jesus, gives him joy to live it according to, to his standard. Which means, as it says here you know, in this text in Ephesians, that, that this takes place before the foundation of the world. So you are a gift that was created. You were created as a gift for Jesus. And not only that, here's, here's the good deal. You're not a last-minute gift. Right? And I know there's some good last-minute gifts. But not only are you not a last-minute gift, but you are the most planned-for gift ever. Like before the foundations of the world? I don't know when that is. Like, is that before the, even the thought about the world? You were planned as a gift to Jesus. You were an eternally planned gift. And I hope that encourages you this morning to think about that. And what we find in this text, in the prayer of Jesus, and quite frankly, if you go back to the book of Isaiah and the conversations between the father and the son, right, the servant in Isaiah, and they have, they have this conversation about who Jesus is going to go save, right? And the names are written on, on God's body, and there's a list, right? Jesus knew you before he even came to the world, before the world was created. He knew you. Think about that. He knew who you were. We know that from Isaiah. Before he came to earth, he had names. He knew you. He came to save you, and he is praying for you right now. That's what that text says. Our salvation, therefore, also, although difficult to comprehend, and it's extremely difficult to comprehend. And so if you feel uneasy about this, 
and you're not worthy, whatever that may be, or you're struggling with the concepts of, of the doctrines of grace, predestination, election, whatever you want to call it, whether you understand it or not, you, we can understand that it is glorious, right? There is nothing about us that saved us. That's why we give glory to Jesus and the Father. And if I save myself, then you guys should be worshiping me, right? And just like we should be worshiping you. If you did something to ascend to heaven, we should be worshiping you. But we were dead in our sin, and we are alive in Christ now by no power of our own. By the grace of God, we are disciples. And Jesus prays for the disciples. Now, specifically here, he prays for, for two things for the disciples, both of them regarding relationships. One is their relationship to God the Father, and the second is their relationship to the world. And that pretty much sums up everything, if you think about it. And so, we find this in verses 11 through 13. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Well, I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so the first thing that Jesus prays here is, is for the relationship with the disciples and with God the Father, that they be kept in the name of the Father. It's kind of an interesting concept, right? What does that mean, be kept in the name of the Father? Why not the power or the, the hedge of protection or the, the sovereignty? Why in the name of the Father? Well, it's not a concept that we use in our culture, but in Jewish culture, the person's named represented everything about them. So, um, theologically thinking, when we talk about God the Father, in the Jewish context, you mention the name, right, Yahweh. It means everything. All the power, wisdom, sovereignty, glory, all of it is represented in the name. And so Jesus says, keep them in your name. Keep them in, your, in yourself. And I think Psalm 20 illustrates this very well, where it says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, which would be military strength, um, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And therefore, Jesus is asking for us to be kept in the name of the Lord and, and in a way that's intimate because Jesus says, keep them in your name, not abstractly, right? But keep them, Jesus says, in a unity that is like him and the Father. So not just in the name, but intimately, you know, you guys know each other. We need to be in the name of the Father. And if we do that, Jesus says, we'll have the joy like he has. Now, being in the name of the Father is the contrast to then being of the world. Being in the name of the Father means that, 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 we are in, that he knows our name. We are on a list that we want to be on, right? The, again, the Isaiah list, right? The list we know that, that for lack of a better term, Jesus, uh, God has tattooed on him, right? Our names, and so God knows our names. But the reality is, even though, praise God, glorify God, praise to Jesus that we are saved, that we are elect, we are still in the world. We are in the world where we could still, you know, have our windows broken 
in the church parking lot, right? In, in a world where our, our lakes dry up and there's dead fish everywhere, we're still in a world that hates us just because we are in the Father. And so Jesus prays for the relationship then of the disciples to the world. So what does it look like to, to be in the name of the Father, but also in the world? What does that dynamic look like? And when you read this in verses 14 through 18, I have given them your word, and the, wor the, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So there's some good news and bad news here right off the bat. So the good news is, hey, this is the first time in a couple of weeks where we haven't had Jesus tell us that the world is going to hate us, right? Jesus doesn't tell us this week that the world is going to hate us. The bad news is it's because he's praying to the Father and telling the Father the world is going to hate us, right? So... And so, yeah, Father, the world is going to hate them, but here, here's, here's what I want you to do for them. And the interesting thing about that, the prayer of Jesus, knowing that we are in the world and that we are going to be hated, is that Jesus does not ask for us to be removed from the world. Right? doesn't say take them out. doesn't say remove them. He asks that the Father would keep us that we would have our faith, that we would have our theology, that we would have our church, that he would keep us. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified by the, the word of truth while being in this world that we are not part of. And so we are supposed to be becoming more like Christ and less like the world as an example to the world. But just what does that look like? like what is that supposed to look like? What does that mean? I know we have stickers. I don't know if anybody has a sticker on their car, not, as, not of the world. What does that actually mean? And I'm not making fun of you if you have that. Don't go take it off. And so what does that mean, though? And here's the deal. Let me, let me in love and, and charity, quite frankly, say that I think that we got this wrong. I think that, that the, the average Christian, many Christians have this completely wrong. And what happens is, and, and I believe this, this is, can be sincere, almost unknowing, unintentionally, we begin to live in a Christian bubble. And um, I've been guilty of this. I, I'm guilty offender up here. Like, I had to switch jobs because I realized, uh, I think at some point, I had gone about a year and a half without having a serious gospel conversation. When I was bivocational, working... Um, at a Christian university, and every part of my life was with other Christians. And so I'm preaching to myself here. But if we exist in, in, in a bubble of church, church, church events, uh, church friends only, and, and the church groups, and maybe you go to a, a Christian school or college, maybe you have a Christian job, like that, that's good, right? That it's Christian. But if we live in a Christian bubble, if every interaction we have is Christian, then we are failing. We are going against our call. We are going against our identity. 
we are going against our purpose. That is not the goal. Jesus says in verse 17, I have sent them into the world. And so be in the world and not of the world. But we have to be in the world, and I don't know that we are. We are to be in the name of the Holy Father and children of the Father, but in a world and not of the world. And, and so what we find here is two more ways that we could pray, specifically about, about this area um, as Jesus prays for the disciples. And the first is pray that we would be in the name of the Holy Father. This means the only way you could know is to know the Father. So pray for knowledge. Theology. Like let's, let's read those thick books, right, with the, with the long hard words and the, and the these and nows and, and, and spend a lot of our free time studying the Father. With that, that is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. Jesus has said, what, over and over, if you love me, you'll obey me, you'll keep my commandments. And so pray that as we know the Father, the way we know the Father and that we are in his name is what? If we act like it, right? I don't care if you get past the theology test. I want to see like the, the, the life test. What does your life tell, tell the world about your theology and whether you're, you're in the name of God or not? Second, pray that we would find ways in our life that we could be in the world and not of it. And so, I mean, we, look, we need look no further than the life of Jesus, right? Now, Jesus had his homies. He had his disciples, right? I mean, tight-knit community that, that Jesus has brought around him to turn the world upside down, to shape, to teach. But he wasn't in a bubble. What was the complaint around him about, about how he lived his life? It said he hung out with, with sinners, Right? That, that was the chief priest. How could you pretend to be holy and you're hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors? That's what Jesus did. He didn't live in a bubble. And so we need to do the same thing and pray for, for the opportunities to have relationships that, quite frankly, uh, may be with people that hate us. Pray what, it would, what would it look like in our lives. Maybe it's a hobby outside of church or your normal group of friends. Maybe it's coaching, um, sports, whatever it might be. How are you going to be in the world? You have to be in the world. You have to be. That is what we're called to be. That's what Jesus prayed for. He, Jesus didn't pray for a supernatural bubble around you. He asked that, that God the Father would keep you as you're in the world. So pray that you can get into the world. And then Jesus goes on to pray for the church. And the first thing that Jesus prays for, oh man, do we need this, is a unity that glorifies. Jesus prays for a unity in the church that would glorify him. And he's talking, you know, he's talking to the disciples here, of course, but he's also talking about us. All the disciples throughout church history praying for the disciples, and Jesus says there's one thing, man. And think about this. As he's talking about how the church can glorify him, you know, he's not, you know, praying for a car wash or, or you know, WWJD bracelets. I mean, you name it. What is Jesus praying for that would glorify him to the outside world, that people would look in and say, oh, 
they're not of the world, they're of something else, and Jesus prays for unity. And if you have been in the church long at all, you know this is easier said than done. Man, is this a hard one. <laughs> and here's the reality, being in ministry, I, I have seen people come and go uh, for, for I, I would say, the majority insane reasons, um, including the color of the carpet when it got updated. It's um, another one. Oh, the jokes pastors have made. Yeah, forgive us. Forgive us the pastor for his jokes. Um, I, I have sincerely heard of somebody leaving a church, Southern Baptist Church, because somebody else brought the same food to the to church picnic as they did. In other words, literally, they, they didn't appreciate or respect the sanctity of the sign-up sheet. And so somebody brought the same dish, and both people left the church in an argument over it. As funny as that is, it would be funnier if it wasn't true. If it wasn't true. I've also heard of and sadly experienced disunity in the church and people leaving the church because they don't like something they heard. Right? And so a doctrinal issue, but not one that, that was heretical, just one they just chose, nope. You know, that, that's where your John 17, 9 would fall in. Nope. Just, just no. I'm not, no. That reminds me of, of uh, a famous quote from, I'm going to mispronounce his name, uh, Rupertus uh, Maldenius. Um, and basically he says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. There is limits to that, of course. If I came up here and said, Jesus is an alien, yes, leave the church, right? Don't, don't worry about charity, leave. But, but what, what I've experienced, and maybe you have as well, it's usually not essential issues. It's not the, res it's not the resurrection. It's some other issue that is not an essential. And not only that, it is almost always never done with charity. And think about it like this. It, it is unity, not uniformity, that Jesus is praying for. Unity, not uniformity, that Jesus is praying for here. You do not have to mindlessly agree with everything I say just because I'm saying it louder and with a mic. That's not what Jesus is saying. You must obey, believe everything he says. No, test it, know the word. You know, and if we disagree, let's have a charitable discussion about it. But he wants our unity. He points out the fact that we are genuinely united. If we are children of God, then we are family. We are united. What kind of family just leaves or, or disagrees harshly? And so we, sh we should act like it, right? Act like we are in Christ. Act like we are, are unified with each other because we truly are. If we do that, we look different than the world. Maybe more so than ever in history, right? I mean... We live in a world where everything is offensive, oppressive, racist, sexist. Everything, even good things, can be fought over in our world. If we want to glorify Jesus, we do that by having a place, being a place where we are together. Where 
And I think there's even more glory in the fact that I know that there's issues where, not to a person, with many of you that I disagree with, that we have some different understandings of Scripture. And the fact that me and you can worship together, that brings glory to Jesus, right? That's a win, right? That's a win. The Holy Spirit will work on our hearts, you know. One of us, you know, we, we might both go a different direction, but we are bringing glory to Jesus by still meeting, knowing, oh, there's one out of 200 points that we disagree on or we're not sure of. Is unity difficult? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so it requires supernatural help. But quite frankly, this whole conversation has been about Jesus saying, yep, things are going to be hard. Hate, tribulation, but the Spirit is coming. And so we have the Holy Spirit in us, giving us a love and, and unity for each other. Jesus then goes on to pray for the church to see his glory in heaven. For I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, I I love this, and I think this is where uh, I wish we could read more emotion in Scripture. Like, I, I just imagine Jesus being so excited about this, and so Jesus is excited because he's having this conversation with the Father. Um, he knows it's just a matter of days before he is back with the Father in his full glory. He's excited because he's already told us back in uh, uh, John 14, uh, 3, that he's preparing a place for us. And, it's, and, and now Jesus is telling the Father, I can't wait for my church to see my glory. And if you've ever been excited about anything, I have something, I bought something, I made something, and you can't wait to show somebody. That is Jesus right now in heaven. As he prays for us, he, just like we long to see Jesus' glory completely and be melted and fall over and all that, Jesus is longing for the day that, that he can show you his full glory. He is beyond excited for you to see who he truly is. And the last thing Jesus prays for is that the church would know the Father. In verses 25 and 26. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so this is simple enough. And so Jesus is praying for his followers to know God the Father like Jesus knows the Father, like Jesus is teaching us so that we can have the love of the Father. Pretty straightforward. The more we know, the better our theology, the more passion, the more we understand God, the more we're going to love God, right? And so he's just praying for us to know the Father in order to, to, to have that relationship that Jesus has. And so we find the last three ways here to pray like Jesus. Pray for unity in the church. Pray for unity in the church. A unity that transcends non-essentials. That transcends non-essentials. That we could listen to different preachers on the radio. 
We can have different beliefs about the route Israel took through the mountains. You know, stuff that, that is not about the resurrection. You know, the non-essentials, that we would show unity. Pray that we would long to see Jesus glorified in heaven. And in a way, as Paul would later say, not, not just long for that moment, but weigh life against that moment. Because again, we're talking about glory here. And so as we long to see the glory of Jesus in heaven, we have to weigh that through our present suffering. Right? We have to understand the weight of glory is greater than our, than our current suffering. And lastly, to pray to know the Father. Pray for an accurate and impacting knowledge of the Father that culminates in understanding who he is and understanding his love for us. And to conclude, I just want to say next time that you read about praying in Jesus' name. Like last week, we talked about that. Well, if you're going to pray in Jesus' name, you better be praying for something um, that Jesus would be praying for. Um, Roger gave me a great example of, uh, say your parent giving you a credit card, right? And say, use this, right, in my name. Well, you have to be careful what you use that for. If it's got your parent's name on it, you can't do something that they wouldn't do. It doesn't make sense. So our prayer should be the same way, right? They should have that name of Jesus on them. And if, and if you wonder, well, what, is it, what does it mean to pray like Jesus in Jesus' name? What would he pray for? Start with John 17, right? There's at least, I, I just took out like eight just right off the bat, eight ways that you could pray like Jesus for the things Jesus is praying for, for the ends that Jesus is praying for them. And secondly, as I stated at the beginning, don't just pray that it happens, but, but do it. Be it. Have unity in the church. Learn about the Father. Uh, go out into the world and bring glory to Jesus without, without being part of the world. And so aim to be the answer to Jesus' prayers. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.